And I almost feel like as I was talking to you, like my brain was literally moving, like something was moving in my brain. And I was like, what about this? (laughs) All right, listeners, welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am one of your co-hosts today, Colin Bendig. And hi, I'm Zach. And today on the podcast, we had Dr. Angelina Davidova. Dr. Davidova is an environmental journalist, visiting scholar at the University of Indiana, and head of the German-Russian Office of Environmental Information. Dr. Davidova has written for various publications on a wide variety of subjects related to climate change, its effects, and the way in which climate journalism is covered and promoted in Russia. Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. A lot of big picture, positive commentary on the state of environmental activism. And it's not something you get every day. So it was a, it was a breath of fresh air. Sit back and have a listen. All right, Dr. Davidova, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. We don't have a lot of environmental content. And so we were kind of hoping to just get started generally how you became an environmental journalist. (laughs) Wow. That was actually a very romantic story. So um, I used to be a journalist writing about economics and business. So all the boring stuff about companies, money, finance, and all of that. And then... Um, Well, I went and did a number of international programs, like at Oxford University, the one from Reuters, and also a number of other ones. And then I tried something else, uh, like working for international organizations. And uh, this is when, in uh, summer 2008, um, I got uh, invited to participate in a project, and that was a very romantic project. So that was uh, a ship, a sail ship, coming all the way from Germany along the southern shoreline of the Gulf of Finland and stopping in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Russia and Estonia. And in every place there would be a festival which would be dedicated to environmental and climate issues. And that festival was supposed to be bringing all these topics and all these problems through culture. So through movies, through photo exhibitions, through um, I don't know, like culture, right? Theater, eco theater. And uh, I was the main organizer of the environmental part of that festival in Russia, in St. Petersburg. And the festival was called Moving Baltic Sea. And uh, ever since that, I always tell that I have an experience of bringing in a sail ship to St. Petersburg. <laughs> and that was quite a spectacular experience. And this is how I feel like I got involved seriously for the first time in my life in environmental discussions and also discussions about environment and climate change. So that um, the the very next fall, I got invited to participate in a youth project, climate youth project organized by Friends of the Earth Europe. And they were organizing a climate camp for young climate activists from all over Europe. And by Europe, they meant also like Russia and Turkey and a lot of other countries around the European Union. And this is where I learned a lot about climate change. I also learned a lot about UN climate negotiations. I also learned a lot about, you know, what are greenhouse gases? Why do we need to bring the emissions down? What is being done? What is not being done? That was fun. That was in Sweden at that time. Oh my God, it's so weird to be speaking now about all these travels in the COVID year. (laughs) And this is how I seriously got into environmental activism and climate activism. And uh, well, cutting the story short, 
So I went into international cooperation in that area between Russia and other countries. And then in about a year, I realized that I actually also miss journalism. And since in that year, I learned a lot about international environmental affairs and international climate affairs, I thought maybe I could start writing again. And that is how I became an environmental journalist. And at the moment, I combine a few activities, like you already mentioned in the beginning. So on one hand, I'm an environmental journalist and I write for Russian international media about environmental and climate topics. I also teach. I teach environmental journalism and environmental communication and climate communication. I'm also in charge of an NGO, which is doing cooperation projects between Russia and other countries. I've, uh, I very often go public lectures. I organize trainings, conferences. So uh, yeah, a lot. And I've been with the UN, with the climate body of the UN since 2008. I feel like there's some joke about bringing sailing ships into St. Petersburg and Peter the Great, but I can't think of it right now. Uh. Yes, coming in on your scarlet sails <laughs> for the festival and offloading. Well, yeah. I've really enjoyed in, in preparing over the past couple of weeks for this interview. I've really enjoyed reading your work and, and listening to your work as well. Something that stuck out to me in stark contrast, because I love environmental journalism coming from California and a very uh, eco-friendly culture, is your message was generally uplifting, <laughs> which is kind of a, a breath of fresh air when it comes to, you know, ecological and environmental coverage in Russia. So I was hoping you could kind of speak to that message of really climate journalism and climate change awareness growing in Russia, along with kind of this, the state of affairs of of climate journalism in Russia? Well, as, as I've already mentioned before, and as you also mentioned, I've been in this sector for the last 10 years. And when I first started writing about it, I felt like it was an empty field. So there were very few people writing about it. The topic seemed unimportant and irrelevant and somewhat marginal for Russia. I would say that in comparison to some other countries, there was never really a large climate deniers movement in Russia or something. Uh, it was rather that the topic was just considered to be unimportant. It was like, ah, oh, climate change is somewhere out there. It's what mostly concerns Global South or it mostly concerns other countries or it concerns future, like very distant future. Um, but then the situation started changing. And I would say that in the next, in the last few years, I see a real growth of interest both towards the environmental and the climate agenda, especially the environmental agenda. It's like one of the top agendas in Russia now, I can say. And um, mostly people like, you know, general public and like people out in the street, they're mostly worried about very immediate and local uh, environmental problems. And those would be problems with the waste management, uh, issues of um, green zones and green areas in the cities, so in the urban context, issues of air pollution. So people are becoming increasingly curious about what is it that they breathe, what is it that they drink, uh, what kind of food products are they consuming, how can they learn more about environmental footprint or whatever they consume. So those topics are on the rise. And um, climate change, it must it was seen maybe as a very distant and somewhat abstract topic for many people. But here, once again, I see a change. 
especially since last year when we had a number of years, like last summer and this summer, we had some very dramatic and large uh, wildfires in Siberia. And they were all over the news, like last year's uh, Siberian fires, you also probably read about them. And they were pretty special. And this year, this summer, the trend continued. It's just in Russia, unlike in some other places, unlike, say, in California or even in Australia, a lot of forest fires are taking place where very few people live or where hardly anyone lives. So, um, first of all, they, they are only really seriously being fought with if they pose a serious danger to human settlements or people. And uh, they also really mostly make it into the news when they approach human settlements. However, what happened last year is that the square of the forest fires, that was really like very large. I mean, I don't have the figures in my head right now, but we can look them up. That was something very special. And this is also was something when almost everyone in the country like seemed to be worried about it. It was like news number one in summer 2019. And that was also a question like, is it going to continue? What can we do about it? Is it connected with climate change? And likewise, this last summer, which was very warm in some parts of the country, including the Arctic, So a few temperature records have been recorded in the Arctic, like temperatures where Arctic has not seen ever, ever, like in the, in the human history. And um, that was also something very special. And then also the stories of thawing permafrost and stories of no ice cover in the Arctic. Also, like a very recent story, like there was a very strange meteorological phenomenon in the far east of Russia, in Vladivostok. There was something which was called an ice rain. And this is what is when it literally, like it rained and then it froze. So everything froze. I saw photos of this. It was incredible. Yeah. Well, it actually also turned out to be a disaster for the energy infrastructure of the region. And they're still fighting to restore the energy supply systems just because the wires, they collapse under heavy snow and, um, you know, some other infrastructure objects. And there's a like, large discussion now among the Russian climate community about, like, you can we call that already part of, like, a direct consequence of climate change? Or, or when will we be able to say that it is actually connected with climate change? Like, what about weather patterns? What about something which happens, which has not ever happened before? So all these questions, I would say, also become more relevant and more important. And they obviously, um, they, they are much more interest to the general public and also to the journalists. So now there are more journalists and more media writing about climate change. Also, many bloggers write about it. There are actually quite a number of the so-called environmental bloggers in Russia. So people who are specialized being environmental bloggers, that can be video bloggers or Instagram bloggers or just uh, yeah, social media bloggers. So I find I think it's fascinating that this is kind of growing at a, at a sort of grassroots level. Has it translated into any political drive in, in a genuine way? Well, I feel like in case of Russia, the, the whole connection between which topics are important and interesting for the general public and which topics are important for political agenda, they're not necessarily directly connected. They're not necessarily connected in a very straightforward manner. The way that it has is that, for example, regions which witnessed large environmental protest campaigns, 
they've attracted a lot of political attention. Say the federal government has tried to replace regional governments because of that, and in many ways try and calm people down and say, well, if there's a particular project that you feel unhappy about, okay, we will stop that. We will not do that. So two recent cases would be, one is a case in, in the north of Russia, in Arkhangelsk region, uh, the Shias case. I don't know, you might have read about it. Uh, so there were plans to build a large landfill there for household waste. That uh, landfill was supposed to be the largest in Europe, I think. And that landfill was mostly for household waste being delivered from Moscow, because Moscow produces one-fifth of all household waste in Russia. There was a massive public protest campaigns. People really literally built camps and they were camping and they were fighting with police and they were going to court and they were doing media campaigns and they were asking celebrities to come and support them. And then the plans have been canceled. And that campaign is also being widely discussed now. And this is also a very interesting case also for the Russian civil society in general, not just environmental movement. And a more recent case is the case in Bashkiria, which is one of the Volga republics next to Tatarstan. And in Bashkiria, one company wanted to do exploration of, um, what do you call it, bicarbonate soda, soda bicarbonate, from a mountain which uh, is supposed to be, which is considered to be a sacred mountain for Bashkir people. And here, once again, there were massive popular protests, and the plans have also been cancelled. So those are just two very recent stories when environmental protests actually changed. Well, I would say not only the political angle, but also like companies' angle. So like companies seeing that there's such massive protests, they decide not to do something. Um, those are just very famous cases. But then there are quite a number of other cases. Like in literally every region of Russia, there's a protest campaign of some kind. And sometimes this protest campaign ends in uh, plans being cancelled. Sometimes protesters lose and they also lose the courts and everything. So it depends. I mean, there's no general rule. But then going back to the political level, I would say that also on the political level, in the last few years, there's been actually an ongoing reform of environmental legislation. So quite a number of laws have been updated and uh, reformed and new ones appearing. And here we really speak about a very bright and broad spectrum from the introduction of the best available technologies. And this is about industrial emissions, not greenhouse gas emissions, but polluting substances from companies, till forestry reform, till reform of like waste management reform. So there are a number of uh, legislation which is either being renewed or either be like a new one is being introduced. And I believe as in case of almost every country, we cannot say there's just, you know, kind of two players, right? One player is government and another player is the public. There are many more players. There are also like business actors lobbying those interests and those interests. And very often it's the business actors who prove to be the most influential ones. And sometimes even when the government or particular ministries, they want to do something good, they see a lot of opposition and a lot of pressure from, from the businesses, from the companies. So yeah, there's a lot happening. So with the rise of this, this engagement in between multiple actors, has government relations to, let's say, you know, picking out a particular actor, professionalized environmental groups. 
has that relationship become more antagonistic? Are they still seen as, you know, particularly agents of, of Western influences, I think? Or has the relation, because of the growing awareness and the grassroots awareness of, of climate and ecological issues, does the government tend to take a political tact and treat these activists and groups and even professional groups, like I mentioned, in a more favorable light? Well, here, I would say there's also no single picture. It varies. It varies greatly from federal to regional authorities and from one region to another region. I would say, like, from my understanding, on one hand, there's still anti-foreign influence campaign being present in the Russian political debate. Like, whenever an NGO is getting money from abroad, they, uh, they have a chance that they will be declared to be a foreign agent and they'll have to pay fine and their life will become much more complicated. But once again, that doesn't happen to everyone. In a way, only those organizations and only those NGOs who work on particular topics and who become enemies of some structures, and those can be also like private companies or some governmental structures. If there's someone who is willing to pin that particular NGO down, they will do it. But that still doesn't prevent other NGOs from working in the area. And then they can be also critical, but then they continue working. So there's no like general rule. It's, it, it varies. Also speaking about the Russian NGO landscape, uh, landscape I would probably have to say that uh, there are two very important players, and those are Greenpeace Russia and WWF Russia. Uh, they have been and then remain to be probably the most two uh, professional and like largest players in the Russian environmental field. And they are the ones who do a lot of lobby work, also PR work, um, communication campaigns, digital campaigns, working with celebrities. So they do all kinds of topics and they, they, they also sometimes get into trouble, but otherwise they, they're still allowed to work and they continue working in Russia. And another interesting factor is that in many of these new groups, the one I was talking about, well, first of all, many of them, they don't get registered as NGOs at all. They don't get registered as organizations. They just remain to be a movement, which also makes it harder for them to be closed down as an organization. But then I would also argue that most of them um, um, refuse any foreign money or like don't even think about taking any foreign money. Some of the activists, and I've also witnessed that, even refuse to talk to uh, international journalists if they come on the spot. Is that because of a fear of, of growing a resentment within the public itself towards their movement? Both, I would say within the public, but also within the political context, because they want to show that they are the true grassroots Russian movement and they're not connected with any foreign Western forces. Uh, they are the ones, they're the true civil society. And this is why sometimes you get it. Well, some groups, on the other hand, are trying to make uh, very large public campaigns, also like in foreign media, and are trying to speak to international journalists. But some are other tackling uh, like internal Russian forces, trying to say that we are, we are uh, the force within this. Uh, within this region and where someone working on this topic. So, um, yeah, I would say that most of these new groups, they are not in any way connected with um, like foundations or also Western foundations or anything like that. And many of them don't get registered as organizations. And many of them also, uh, um, they also, some of them are very short living. Some of them don't become professional organizations. They only leave 
and they only exist as long as their cause exists, and then they disappear. However, once again here, there's also no general rule, um, because some of them do become professional, and some of them transform themselves into something else, like some former protest campaigns may become an, a movement which works with an area of, I don't know, sustainable waste management, and they start doing educational campaigns for children, for adults, and they start working with local businesses. So, like, everything changes. Like, groups and people migrate all the time from topic to topic and from activity to activity. That's fascinating. So I'm curious, as this awareness has grown, has the Russian state began to address transnational environmental issues that are affecting the Russian people and the Russian state? And what is the Russian state's interaction with, let's say, China when it comes to cities like Khabarovsk and, you know, long-range air pollution coming into Russia from these kind of Chinese, you know, these massive Chinese cities and hundreds of millions of Chinese citizens living just over the, the Amur River. Is the Russian state engaging in any meaningful way with countries on these broader climate-related issues? Well, it has to be noticed that both the parts of Russia, which lie along the Russian-China border, are not very densely populated. Like, there are a number of cities, but otherwise it's not densely populated at all. And likewise in China, I mean, we all have this image of China being evenly and very densely populated. However, it's also not the case, like parts uh, along the Russian border. I mean, there are a few like larger places like Harbin, but otherwise, uh, I mean, there's not so much happening, not so much as in the coastal areas of China or in the south eastern parts of China. Now, point number two, there are some cases indeed of transborder pollution coming from China to Russia, and that mostly affects either transboundary water pollution, like Amur River or other rivers. And question number two, which is probably even more relevant for Russia and more widely spread nowadays in the public and media context, is an area of logging illegal or illegal loggings by Chinese companies or Chinese investors in Siberia. That, I would say, is the question which is obviously in the public debate and something which is being talked uh, a lot. So um, in terms of air pollution, I don't often hear these stories. Water pollution more often. But then I haven't heard any particular cases of like Russia going after China and, you know, asking to clean up or something. I mean, something comes up in the news, but I have not seen the stories developing in any serious way. However, the forestry issue is, is, is an important one. I mean, there's, uh, as I already mentioned, there's an ongoing reform of the forestry sector. And now Russia is trying to put more and more limitations on exports of unprocessed wood which will potentially also influence, well, they call them like black loggers or gray loggers, right? So company working in that area, especially in the east of Russia, where there's very little control and there are like very, a lot of gray schemes. Also the way wood is being uh, taken out of Russia and sold to China. And in many ways, it's all done officially and legally, but then it's still unsustainable and it's still... Um, so in a way, it's a very gray sector. It's a very shadow sector, but it's also a sector which attracts a lot of attention from various kinds of um, actors. And um, it looks like the, if you speak about environmental issues in Russia and China, I would say forestry is the number one issue at the moment. 
it does not necessarily mean smuggling forests, right? Like, can you smuggle the forest? It, it can take various forms. For example, the way it usually happens. So companies rent forestry land and then they cut down particular forest on that land. And then they are required to do reforestation. Then they also subsequently, they sell the forest which they cut elsewhere, processed or unprocessed. Like this is this general scheme. What can happen? First, companies can cut down much more forests than they said they would. They can also cut down in the areas which are next to their plot, but are not being monitored because it's so far away and there's no one there, like literally no one there and no one goes and checks. Maybe one inspector once a year goes and checks and they just pay a bribe to him or they threaten him or something. And then they also subsequently pay bribes to the customs and they have their own custom channel where they export more than they said they would. So they have one thing on paper and another thing in reality. Like on paper, you would have one train and in reality, you may have 10 trains. That can also be different kind of wood because not all of wood is the same. And some of wood is also prohibited to be exported out of Russia if it's a particular precious wood. And here, once again, on paper, it's one kind of wood. And in reality, it can be a different kind of wood, the one they are exporting. And there can also be stories of people just buying equipment and going into the taiga and just cutting, cutting it down and selling it to Chinese companies, like on their own, like, you know, three guys creating a company, buying some very kind of wood cutting equipment and chopping it down. And um, there's also the whole question, I believe it's a kind of a similar argument and a similar program, problem that you have with poaching in many regions of the world. It's also like, what is it else that people can do there, right? Like what other job opportunities are out there? And if forest is around them and if forest is considered to be free, and if they think, okay, we'll just cut it down and sell it to Chinese, then well, they, they'll do it. And in many ways, especially on the regional level, everyone is connected to everyone. And these systems are really hard to break unless you're on the spot. And as I already mentioned, very often it's so far away like no satellite control or anything it's like it's it's hard yeah i just mentioned a few schemes but there are many more do you see a different flavor of activism as you move across russia going from novosibirsk all the way to Vladivostok? do you see being farther removed from the russian center do you see a more aggressive or assertive we're, we're so often the stories come into the Western media from Vladivostok, whether it's related to pollution off Kamchatka or other types of transnational pollution or environmental pollution or wildlife poaching. Uh, and it seems that, you know, from the Western perspective, there is this different kind of flavor of activism in either Siberia or the Far East. Oh, my God. In order to answer your question properly, I feel like I need to write a dissertation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, to start with, I would probably not divide Russia. And I would say Russia's differences between various regions of Russia, they don't vary between East and West, like Western part and Eastern part. But I feel like the greatest differences are between large cities and uh, smaller cities and rural areas. And how would you categorize like a Habarovsk or Vladivostok as smaller or? So Habarovsk and Vladivostok, they would probably be both around a million of inhabitants. So millionniki, what they call in Russia. 
And usually people living in those Milionikis, like what unites them is that like normally in Milionikis, I mean, there are a few exceptions, but still, well, first of all, people living there are wealthier than people living in other areas around them. Like the rural urban income divide and inequality divide is huge in Russia. So first of all, people are wealthier. It's also in those cities, there's far less industry, if any industry at all. So most of the campaigns which you have in large cities from Moscow to Volgograd and from Yekaterinburg to Vladivostok, those would probably be urban environmental topics. Those would be air pollution and air quality information. Those would be quality of water and access to information of water quality from the local uh, wastewater treatment plants and water treatment plants. Those would be green areas. Well, this is an issue all around large cities in Russia. Because what happens in Russia, and you probably know this, like on one hand, uh, the general population of Russia is declining, but then the urban population of Russia is growing. So in short, everyone is moving to these large cities because the quality of life is better, social services are better, schools are better, like job prospects are better. So which means cities growing. Cities are growing, which means there's more construction everywhere. And by construction, like a lot of this construction is unsustainable. They just ruin down a park and build something new because construction, because real estate downtown always costs a lot more than somewhere on the outskirts of the city. And they cut down forests, they build new roads. So a lot of these urban campaigns would be for green areas and against new construction, but mostly housing and infrastructure construction. So those would be typical urban topics. And also a lot of the urban topics are, you know, especially the young people, they are very much into the global agenda. They're also like the Fridays for Future in Russia. The Fridays for Future in, uh, like in most of this Goroda Milioniki, like cities with more than one million inhabitants, you would have a local Fridays for Future group now. Uh, I mean, in some places it can be as small as 10 people, in other maybe 70, 100. But still, like for young people, issues of climate change, but also sustainable consumption, ethical consumption, issues of what about environmental footprint, what about zero waste, like all these topics are super important. Like I know someone who created the first zero waste store in Tumane. <laughs> I know people who like do all sorts of weird stuff, but in cities in cities and more or less maybe not necessarily a city larger than a million but at least larger than half a million then a second kind of campaigns and i'm just inventing it as i speak because no one has asked me this question before <laughs> yeah i'm thinking as i speak so the second kind of campaigns would be original campaigns connected with the plans of say a new pollutant production facility if there are plans to build a new pollutant something there would be a regional campaign against it. And in that case, it's more of a regional campaign. It can both involve people from a large city, but also smaller city, and maybe even from the rural areas, like Shias and Arhangelsk was the case to it. Those were people from smaller places. But that would be a very strong regional campaign. In many ways, a lot of these campaigns, they also have an issue of inequality connected with them and like social inequality in a very interesting way because most of these campaigns, they take place in uh, regions which are very rich in resources, but otherwise are not particularly wealthy. 
That can be Arhangelsk region. That can also be, say, many coal regions in Russia, like Kuzbas regions, where the last years also saw protests against air pollution from coal. And in many ways, uh, what people are feeling is that they live there and then say a rich company comes. It can be, in most cases, it's a Russian company, but it's just owned by oligarchs who can be living in London. And they just read about this oligarchs that he's building the largest ever yacht on, on earth, right? From, from a famous architect. And he's never there. And like most of the managers are also never in the region. So in a way, they feel like their resources are being taken away. And what they get is just waste in that form or another. It can be a direct waste from Moscow, or it can be a waste in terms of like industrial waste or extraction waste. And they feel like they're not being treated with honor. They have been treated as a region from which all these other rich companies, which can be also state-owned companies or private companies, they're just trying to exploit these regions, like suck out all the resources and uh, yeah, leave the waste there. So I would say in many of these regional conflicts, there's a lot of that social equity debate, which I also find to be very interesting. But that's, once again, because as I mentioned before, the, the level of regional inequality in Russia is, is huge. This is also something which contributes a lot, I believe, to the environmental campaigns. And then there are also campaigns which are being done by more, say, professional organizations. So more professional NGOs, which also have, say, scientists or former scientists working for them, and which very often work on topics which are not visible for the general public. Because if a forest is being cut down, it's visible. If you have black sky because of air pollution, it's visible. If you have yellow water, it's also visible. But then some topics are not that visible. But then, so you have this professional NGOs also all across the countries. Say there's one in Sakhalin, which is called Echo Watch of Sakhalin, which is working a lot on an issue of uh, fishery and unsustainable fishery. And is also working on the area with, um, in the, on the topic of mammals and also um, uh, mammals being caught and also sold elsewhere, also quotas for mammals being sold also to China or other countries. So they're working with animal protection, they're working with fishing issues, they're working also with forestry issues, but very often if you're working with, for a particular campaign or for a particular topic which is not visible and which is not maybe very easy to understand, you need to have a lot of expertise and you need to have, I don't know, people with scientific background, people with legal background, environmental lawyers. So you need to have all these experts who work there full time, who are not just activists. So with the socioeconomic divide, do you frame your journalism as, as climate change? Just in my own experience working with localized issues, it can be such a high-minded issue that tends to divide people, especially in times of economic turbulence. So do you tend to try to frame your journalism in a way that's kind of respectful of, of the socioeconomic divide and respectful of those outside of urban areas like St. Petersburg or Moscow and kind of brings people into the fold who uh, maybe otherwise are struggling economically? Well, I'm trying to. It's also that my time is limited. <laughs> my efforts are limited. I cannot do everything. I cannot <laughs> travel to all of the places. And I remember when I was starting to write about environmental issues, which I mentioned around 10 years ago, I used to write about all environmental 
policy in Russia, environmental protests in Russia, like about everything. Okay, it's impossible now. It's like there's so much happening. I even don't follow all the news about waste reform in Russia because there's so much happening. I pretty much specialize, like I specialize a lot on the climate, climate policy uh, and everything connected with climate from business reactions to civil society movements. I'm trying to always read a lot and talk to people and also understand the bigger picture like what are the trends like the one you asked me about I'm always trying to see the bigger picture and I'm also I may be someone who is not writing very local stories like feature stories from a particular region but I'm more trying to analyze what's happening and I'm more trying maybe to write an analytical piece about what's happening across regions in Russia why is it happening what's changing how changes in um, public perception of environmental agenda influences uh, state policies in the area or something like this. So unfortunately, I cannot follow everything. But then there are quite a number of fellow colleagues of mine who do wonderful stories, amazing stories, also from the spot, traveling to all these distant regions of Russia and trying to, um, to write a report there and to speak to people from there. Uh, I know them. Unfortunately, I cannot do all of this because, like, that's too much, right? I just, I just cannot do it. Good problem to have, at least. <laughs> There's so much positive environmental news that I, I can't cover it all. Well, some of them are also negative, but at least there's something happening. It seems like part of what characterizes the environmental movement in Russia today is a connection to the global environmental movement and these trends of urban-rural inequality and where the focus on environmental issues seems to come up. And I wonder, I wonder how different that global environmental attention is now from the somewhat more national environmental movements of maybe the 80s and 90s around Chernobyl and not to get too into the you know nuclear theory of you know, of the of that, but I wonder if there's any sort of connection between those movements then and the way the environmental activism is conducted today. Wow, that's actually a very interesting question. Here once again, I don't think I have an answer which I've thought for a long time and in which I have a clear answer. So maybe I'll just speak as I think. But before that, let me get another glass of water. I'll be right back. So that's actually a very, very interesting argument which you brought up. I was speaking to a German friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and he was also saying that if we look up at like European urban environmental movements these days and then in the 80s, in the 80s, everyone was like mostly like anti-nuclear or anti-something else. Now, a lot of environmental movement is about lifestyle, is about what is it that you consume what is it that you buy? What is your T-shirt made of and where? Uh, what is it like a climate-neutral sandwich or a climate-friendly sandwich? <laughs> so all of these topics. And there's a lot more of that aspect, which you can probably call environmentally conscious lifestyle, consumption, like these topics. And these topics are also coming to Russia. Like around this urban youth, like it's super trendy and it's super hip. You know, like vegan, going vegan, uh, trying to calculate the carbon footprint of everything you do, 
what about zero waste? What about no plastic? So all of these topics, I feel like those are, at the moment, I feel like those are probably universal topics. But then the question is, are they really only for people of, of certain income and higher? But I feel like in Russian context, it's probably like Russian medium, middle-class youth there, many of them are into it. Speaking about other global topics, well, I would say, as I mentioned, climate change is kind of slowly getting there in Russia. There is not a very strong climate movement. It's mostly like the Fridays for Future are emerging. But then many of these environmental activists say also the ones who are into zero waste or into, I don't know, some other topics, they also starting to kind of broaden up their mind and thinking, Maybe there are also other topics they should be considering, like what about climate change? They want to learn more. They want to also realize what is it they can do and what is it that they can have an influence on. And this is also a very important question for Russia, I believe, because here I feel like uh, not everywhere that people have a feeling that they can actually have a direct influence over politics, because in many ways, politics is being done somewhere else by someone else. Like they don't have that direct connection, say, if they engage for a particular campaign, they mostly engage to influence other people, not to influence politicians, because they realize that, you know, politicians, they would probably say most politicians are corrupt anyway. We cannot influence them. We cannot do anything. So in a way, what they're trying to do is they're trying to change mindsets of people and uh, mindsets, the way people think, the way people do, the way people consume, the way people... I don't know, deal with their waste and other topics. And in a way, dealing on climate issues is a bit more complicated in the Russian context. Like, what can you change here? Like, can you appeal to the government that there will be more renewable energy? Well, you can, but will there be any result of it? That's that's a question. And likewise, on the regional level, like energy supply and heating supply and everything, like it's mostly heating in case of Russia, not air conditioning, as you know. It's also centralized. It's very hard to change something in the systems on the everyday level. Like, I mean, there are cases, there are cases of people installing solar panels in the Krasnodar region, and there are more and more of these cases, like biogas equipment. So, um, in a way, I feel like within the Russian context, the, the climate agenda, it's not, it's not easy to connect it with very concrete actions. Like, what can you do? Maybe in terms of consumption, yes, but in terms of political action, it's a bit more complicated. And uh, at that level, only large professional NGOs like WWF and Greenpeace are working, and maybe a few other ones. They're the ones who do lobbying. They're the ones who... Uh, write reviews to legislation and also like the legislation drafts. If they see a dangerous legislation approaching, they would start a campaign against it. But it's something, once again, which requires a lot of professional work, not maybe like the grassroots level at, at every, at every place. So in a way, engaging for a park or campaigning for a park or campaigning for against a landfill or against an incinerary, that obviously brings more concrete results, also something almost tangible that people can see. Have I answered your question? I'd say so. And uh, I, I don't know if you'd indulge me. I know your, your focus is generally on the, on the macro and, and climate issues, but, you know, reading about Zapovedniki and, and Russian 
national parks, I, I guess if you could call them that, or preserves. You know, I'm certainly curious as an American because you know, national parks here in, in the U.S. and I'm sure, as you know, you know, in your time at Indiana, they tend to unite people from across the political spectrum. And whether you have a really a, a climate activist background or not, they they really tend to unite people. And they kind of hold this mythical status kind of with this growing green movement and this kind of growing green awareness, is there more of a love or appreciation for that idea of a national park and a pilgrimage to a park and and something that we could kind of equate to the American trips to Yellowstone or Yosemite or or similar parks? Well, that's actually a very interesting question, but I have to mention that the Russian system of national parks and other, well, as they say, because we have... um, quite a lot of categories of nature-protected areas, like various nature-protected areas. Uh, In a way, it's quite different from the one you have in the US. First of all, a lot of these nature-protected areas are so far away from any human settlements or are so hard to get to. So in a way, they're considered to be far. I mean, there are still some which are in the European part of Russia and in the Caucasus, but like many of them are out in Siberia and in order to get there, like you have to fly with a helicopter or even like traveling to the far east of Russia is uh, like for many Russian is far more exotic than traveling to, I don't know, Turkey or Egypt or Spain. <laughs> it's very far. So in a way, I feel like if a particular nature uh, reserve or nature protected area is close to where many people are, That can happen in Russian context too. However, if it's not close, if it's far away, then it just doesn't happen. There have actually been a number of recent conflicts between nature-protected areas and local population. Because by expanding an area of the nature-protected area, that was preserving local people from, say, I don't know, gathering berries and mushrooms and doing other activities in the in the park, which they otherwise considered to be theirs, right? Or like no one's. They felt like it belongs to everyone. And then if they're suddenly coming in your nature reserve or a nature protected area is being enlarged, then they feel like their life has been taken away from them because it used to be theirs and now it's someone else's. So there have been a number of conflicts between local communities and nature reserves, which is interesting. What is also interesting, there's also a trend of some companies trying to cut down like parts of nature protected areas. But here, mostly the ones which are located in very lucrative areas from the point of view of tourism, say Caucasus, like in the mountains in the Caucasus, there are a number of nature reserves and a number of companies are trying to cut parts of them out so that they can build ski resort infrastructure. I mean, this is this is it. Sometimes there are public protests, but sometimes there are protests just from the side of scientists and environmental activists, and they're not massively supported by people. Like I see very few campaigns in Russia which would massively support that, even though everyone loves nature, but then everyone also feels like there's a lot of nature out there. You can just go and uh, there's like nature, there are forests. So I feel like maybe from the environmental side, there should be more communication campaigns done on the, about the nature protected areas. Like, why are they? What are they? What is their importance? Why do we need to have them? Not only for us to enjoy it, not only for us to feel good about it, but they also perform very important ecosystem functions, like for the whole planet. 
And somehow that explanation is not being done. And I feel like this is why this particular area and this particular topics, they don't become something that, you know, masses of people unite. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating perspective and kind of changed my the prism uh, through which I look at kind of the Zapovedniki and reserves in Russia and how Russians see them. Have, so, you, have you been here? Yeah, I've, I've spent about a, a cumulative month there in two separate trips. I mean, we made some good friends and they were actually from um, the Urals, a few friends from the Urals and one from sort of Boot, which is pretty remote. Speaking of, of uh, localized issues, he always sends me pictures of localized environmental issues and corrosion of buildings and such. So anyway, I loved my time in St. Petersburg. Oh, well, you're always welcome to come again. I can't wait. <laughs> Believe me. As soon as we're all welcome to travel again. Did you have anything, any projects you're working on that you wanted to plug? Well, I don't know. I'm somehow working on so many projects now. Um, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm editing a climate change report for the Russian Human Rights Council. And that's okay. like a very important project. And we do a lot of talks and a lot of, I'm actually having another Zoom with them in half an hour. I'm also a virtual fellow for the, wait a minute, it's in DC. I was actually supposed to be there live. But then because of everything, uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, they're based in D.C. I'm uh, alone with two other Russian researchers. Uh, we are like virtual fellows there now. And we do analysis and we do talks and we also write papers about various aspects of Russian climate uh, agenda. And I cover society and media and other colleagues cover like politics and business and uh, so this is, uh, this is my U.S. connection at the moment. Unfortunately, it's virtual. Well, uh, Dr. Davida, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Well, thank you for making me think about the things which I have not thought before. <laughs> and I almost feel like as I was talking to you, like my brain was literally moving, like something was moving in my brain. And I was like, oh, what about this? <laughs> you had a very good question. That's our goal here on the Slavic Connection, to get brains moving. So you've done our job. <laughs> well, if you ever have any questions or anything, you're always welcome to reach out to me. Thank you so much, Dr. Davidova. Спасибо. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Texas.